Hi, this is Leland Sklar here, and you are listening to Musicians on the Record, and it is a great place to listen. So check it out and go for it. Welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward. You've heard the music, now hear their story, and you have definitely heard this guy's music. If you've listened to the radio for any time in the last 50 years, you have heard legendary session bassist Leland Sklar. The Wizard of the Bass is on the show today. Lee has been on over 2,000 albums as a session musician, such classics with James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Phil Collins, Warren Zevon, excitable boy for for the love of God. This guy's discography is incredible. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, thousands of others. We have Father Time, and he definitely keeps good time on the bass. Legendary bassist Leland Sklar is on the show. We're going to be talking about so many fun stories from his career. And of course, Lee was also part of the classic section band. The section, very much like the Wrecking Crew back in the 60s and 70s. These guys are amazing. We're going to talk to Leland Sklar today on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're back with us, welcome back. And if this is the first time you're here, welcome. And I would encourage you to consider subscribing to the podcast. We'd love to have you here. And we'd also love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. And please let us know which musician story you'd most love to hear. Let us know, and we'll try to get them on the show for you. Follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our website, Musicians on the Record. And if you want to watch all of these interviews, you certainly can. They are in video form as well. You get to see Lee and I talking, and check out our YouTube page, Facebook, and on the website, MusiciansOnTheRecord.com. So let's get right to it. It's Leland Sklar on Musicians on the Record. Hi, Lee. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for your time. I'm a big fan, and uh, you know, I'm just going over your discography with my research to interview you. And I'm like, my God, man, this is like the soundtrack of our lives and uh, some of my favorite albums. JT, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Phil Collins. It's unbelievable. It's been a a great run. I can't complain. Yeah, it's incredible. And so you had mentioned you just got off the road from South America with Phil Collins. Yeah, we did South America, Mexico, and Puerto Rico. Wow. And uh, it was was fabulous. You know, I mean, this guy, he's still filling stadiums. Amazing. You know, as a solo artist. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's really amazing. It's it was great. So. Yeah. And so how is he doing? I know he's been pretty public health-wise, some issues. Uh, is he drumming yeah. at all? No, he's not drumming. No. Um, his, his son, Nicholas, is our drummer now, who uh, just turned 17 the other day. <laughs> and he is absolutely killing it. Um, I, I mean, I've known Nick since he was born. Yeah. And um, Nick was a, uh, a badass little drummer when he was four. Wow. So. Um, it's, it's, a tri- it's a trip for me on stage to be turning around and looking behind me and seeing Nick there. And it's got to be unbelievable for Phil when he, yeah. when he looks back and sees his son. But, I mean, Phil might be able to get away with a little bit of drumming. But um, at this point, I think the attitude is, you know, the baton's been passed. He's been playing... 
yeah. drums for decades. And if and if he could play up to his own standards, sure. I'm sure he would. But he had some surgeries that yeah. that in, that injured him more than helped him. Yeah. And uh, and so it's it's better for him just to be down front and and carrying the show from from that sure. seat. Sure. But it's so great that he is back on the road because I know he kind of retired a little bit for a while there. Yeah. We were surprised as anybody that we uh-huh. were back out. Last year we did um, a week at the Albert Hall, a week in Cologne, Germany, a week in Paris, wow. and then a bunch of uh, other little gigs you know, around the U.K. And the whole thing sold out in like a minute. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think uh, I think they're hopefully looking towards the future with more and more work. You know, yeah. we've all we've all got our fingers crossed, right. band and crew. Yes. Yeah. And I was wondering, are there more shows that are coming up that you know of? Um, nothing. Uh, there's there's things that are being talked about, but uh, nothing that I never talk about anything until it's in absolute, sure. you know, ink. Right. So I don't want to disappoint anybody by them saying, well, you said you were going to be here, and right. then you weren't. Right. So yes. we'll see. Okay. But fingers are crossed. Fingers crossed, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. What's it like uh, getting ready to play the Royal Albert Hall with Phil Collins or anybody else that you've played that venue with? Um, those kind of rooms are, are interesting to me. Um, it's like Carnegie Hall, and, and, and there's a there's a weight of history that sits on your shoulders when you walk into those. It's not like walking into a sports arena, and um, so it's 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 deep. You know, you look on the walls, and there's pictures of high fits and 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 you know every great classical musician has played in those rooms, and every you know there are tons of, of people from pop and jazz and. So you walk in and you go, no, I better not suck. This, <laughs> this, this is going to be good. But um, I've played the Albert Hall a number of times now, and it's it's a beautiful venue to play. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm really happy. I still go play at people's birthday parties at their houses. You know, so you know, it's if you're playing music, you're I'm happy. Yeah, that's great. When was your last gig, by the way? The uh, last gig was. Um, uh, last weekend, yeah. um, we played at a place called Bogies, which is up in Westlake Village, uh, north of uh, LA. That's great. And the the band is actually myself, Russ Kunkel, Danny Korchmar, Wadi Wachtel, and Steve Postel. And um, Cooch, uh, Danny got a record deal um, uh, from a, a label uh, in Japan. Wow. And so we did his record, and it's basically all of his songs that he's written for people like James and Henley and all this, but done the way Cooch wanted to always do them. So um, we put this thing together, and um, we also did some of the stuff that Waddy's been involved with. I mean, basically, in this show, it's all these songs from from Dirty Laundry to Werewolves of London, and it's all stuff that was either written by, produced, or played by this band. That's awesome. So we, we, we played um, this gig, and we're going to Japan for about two weeks in June yeah. um, to do a, a Billboard Live tour and a couple of other gigs. So that was my last gig was with those guys. That's and awesome. then I just went the other day, and uh, which wasn't really a gig, but I spoke at a high school up in that area to a, a, a class up there. That's and, great. Uh, discouraged everybody from going into the music business. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's over, kids. Yeah, get, get a life. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I, I want to talk with you about that a, a little later, too, about the music business. But, you know, what you're talking about is, uh, for those who don't know, and please Google Lee Sklar and The Section, You, you this band is The Section, right? Well, it's an element of The Section. Cooch and Russ um, and myself and Craig Berge yes. were The Section. Yes. Um, Craig, Craig still lives near me, and uh, we still play together. Um, but this is a slightly different version of it, um, So, with having Wadi involved. And then another friend in L.A., Steve Postel, um, he and Cooch have been doing a lot of writing and playing together. So uh, it's, it's an incarnation uh, of, of, a, of, a, of a section of the section. Right. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> We're, we should just call ourselves the Viva section. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, I had the distinct pleasure at this past uh, NAM show 2018, and I hope they do more of this. You guys, as the section, sat down and did the classic, uh, you know, the story behind the album of Jackson Brown's Running on yeah. Empty, because you guys did it. I had yeah. I had no idea uh, that you guys recorded this album on the road in buses in hotel rooms. Can you say a little bit about what you remember about that time and recording that album? Well, it was magic. You know, I mean, it, it's it, it, first off, it's probably one of the few live albums that when you listen to it, it's a hundred percent live. I mean, there's been so many other live albums that they go in the studio and tweak and mess with and ultimately end up the only live thing is the audience right. um yes it, but we really did uh, we had remote gear with us the whole time so we were recording on the bus we were recording we, we tore apart a hotel hotel room i had my little bass amp underneath the desk as a bass trap we took the bed apart and set the box spring and the mattress against the wall and made a drum booth out of it. Jackson was in the bathroom singing. It's unbelievable. Um, you know, it's, it was really kind of a, it was kind of like guerrilla warfare. Yeah. You know, there was no real plans. They recorded pretty much every moment of this of this tour, and it became an iconic uh, album out of it. Yeah. But you know, when you're in the moment, you're not really aware of what what history is going to sure. you know say about it. But sure. uh, it definitely stood the test of time. And, to be uh, doing th that at the NAMM show. And then also um, the, the section was given a Lifetime Achievement Award right. by, the, by the Tech Awards. Yes. And Jackson was given the Les Paul Award. Right. So they had us come in the evening and play with Jackson. And that's the first time the four of us and Jackson had played since, I think, his 50th birthday party. Wow, wow. <laughs> Which was a, a while back, or 40th birthday maybe. Who Amazing. knows? Uh, Amazing. It's been a long time. Sure, yeah. That's so very, very special memories yes. that continue to be developed out of this. Right. And so all analog back then, right? All analog tape. Yeah. And was it right in the room, the recording equipment, or did you have a mobile truck? We had a mobile. Mobile. We, it was, well, sometimes we recorded, like when we were on the bus, um, uh, we did some stuff with just a little unit on there. But Greg Ladani engineered it. Uh, uh, who passed away a few years ago. Um, and Greg was an amazing engineer, so he's one of those guys that kind of take any situation and figure out how to make it work. Right. Right. And uh, But most of it was done with a remote truck with a 24-track uh, machine. Wow, incredible. Just incredible, yeah. Let's. Yeah. Uh, there's so much discography that you have. Uh, we won't be able to get to all of it today. So. Yeah, please. I don't, I'll, 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 I'll be an old man with a long gray beard by the time we finish <laughs> right. 
You'll 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 be Gandalf by then. I, I understand. I don't yeah. want to uh, I don't want to take all that time. But let's talk a little bit about how your story of music even began and why the bass. When did you fall in love with music in the first place? Well, I mean, it's it's really funny. When I was a little kid, and some people that listen to the show will remember him, and others won't know him. They can just Google him up. But a, a big deal when I was a little tiny kid was the Liberace show. Sure. And Liberace was a, a wonderful pianist, but he was like Elton before Elton right. ever dreamed of, before Elton was even conceived that was Liberace. Right. And he was, he had a TV show. And, and when I was at like four years old, I would um, sit and watch the show with my parents. And I fell in love with the piano. And we had a piano in the house. So I. I, I, I took an interest in the piano and started studying. And for the most part, I was a classical snob child. Yeah. Um, and I and I studied piano and, and was actually got a lot of accolades and stuff um, throughout my childhood. But when I was 12, I went into junior high school and um, kind of walked in with the attitude Ta-da, your piano players arrived. <laughs> and the music teacher, whose name was uh, Ted Lynn, uh, said, you know, basically looked at me and he said, look, there's like 50 kids here that play piano. We need a string bass player. And he pulled an old blonde K out of the back room and he showed it to me and, and, and showed me how to hold it. And as soon as I plucked a note and felt that vibration, I just looked at him. I said, so wow. and, uh, yeah. he gave me he gave me some rudimentary lessons on it. And um and I, I kind of left piano at that point. I just said, I'm done with this because I was kind of stressed out with it. And I'd been under a lot of pressure with it. So um, bass took over. And within a couple of years, I was in, in a bunch of bands. I, I, I took a, some private lessons. Uh, I took more lessons uh, as the years went on. But this was still pretty early. Um, and uh, it's just it, it be, it just kind of became everything to me, never thinking it would be a career. Ever. Um, I was in college and I was a science and art co-major and I thought I might be a medical illustrator or a technical illustrator or an oceanographer. Wow. And but I was always in bands, always mm. playing clubs. And I was sometimes in four or five, six bands at a time, mm. you know, just to be busy. And in one of those bands, which was called Wolfgang, at the end of the 60s, um, our drummer had a friend. Uh, our drummer's name was Bugs Pemberton, and Bugs actually was a, a British drummer who was in Jackie Lomax and The Undertakers, who were rivals to the Beatles back in the day in London. I mean, Jackie was like a matinee idol, and this guy was like as good-looking as a guy can possibly be. Yeah. And um, and but he Bugs moved to L.A. and he had a friend named John Fishback, and John Fishback owned a recording studio called Crystal where we did Jackson's first record and lots of records. And, and John produced and engineered all the early Stevie Wonder uh, mm. stuff. Mm. But John came to, uh, he used to come and hang out at our rehearsals with Wolfgang. And one time he brought a friend of his who had just gotten back from England and it turned out to be James Taylor. Mm. And so we were hanging with James and James came by a couple of our rehearsals and he got offered a gig when his first album which he had just done in England right. was coming out and he got offered a gig at the Troubadour and they remembered me and they needed a bass player and they called and asked if I'd play this gig. Wow. And, and to a certain extent, I'm still on the gig, right. you know, half a century later. I mean, it's just so weird yeah, you know, how, how things happen because it's not planned. It's just, 
it was so organic the way my whole career came together. Right. Um, so here I sit. Right. But and it's, it's culminating with talking to you. Right. Because right. after we're through, what else can I do? Right. It's the top of the mountain, Ma, right? You know, so. Absolutely. I've, 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 I've reached the pinnacle. <laughs> Well, hopefully there's more, but uh, what what an incredible thing, though. But that was still part of you, though, too, Lee, that you were playing and working your chops and networking with people and being a good hang that, oh, yeah. that JT remembered you and said, I want that guy. Yeah, That's no, awesome. it was it was like the perfect storm. It all yeah. came together so per- yeah. so perfectly. And um, just my expectations never were that. It, 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 it's always kind of strange when you talk about music, and it's always referred to as playing. Right. right. You know, in the same way, a little bit like being an athlete. You know, yes. you're playing. Right. Um, it, it's it's hard to realize that you can actually amortize that into paying your bills and right. doing all these things. Yeah. So it it kind, it kind of caught me off guard. And and when I went in the stu- when I started working in the studio. My very first project after James was Brian Hyland being produced by Del Shannon. Oh my God! Um, so that goes way back. And um, but when I when I started working in the studio, we were we were like the next wave after the Wrecking Crew guys were right. at at their zenith. Yes. And uh, when I actually to turn the clock back a little from that in 1967 i was in a band called group therapy oh, I love and, we, that. And, and we got a record deal and our producer was mike post okay now mike post at that time was the musical director for the andy andy williams show and he had just done classical gas with mason williams so we get this record deal we go in the studio well we're not allowed to play on it we're too inexperienced. We're a young band. So I look in the window of the recording studio and I see Hal Blaine and Carol Kay and the entire wrecking crew wow. was in. It was a huge, huge group. It was yeah. a big production yes. thing. And um, I was looking at these guys going, I'll never do that. And that was 67. And by 70, I was working with most of those guys every day. That's it was awesome. just like the fastest wow. turn. But becoming a studio player was really a profound experience because I had never really been in the studio except to cut a couple of demos with yeah. bands. So to figure out how to craft the sound, yeah. um, just the etiquette of the studio yes. um, really was kind of like grab the seat of your pants and start going for it. Right. So it, it's uh, it's been an, an interesting adventure throughout throughout these millennia right. that, that I've been doing this now. Can you share a little bit of those? Uh, no, no, absolutely okay, nothing. All right, moving on then. I, I would have to kill you. <laughs> No, no, no. Some of that etiquette, no. those learning lessons, that learning curve you got in the studio. I mean, my God, you started playing with the Wrecking Crew. What? Yeah. What did you learn in those moments? Well, so much of it was things just like professionalism. You know, if, if it's a ten o'clock downbeat for a session, you show up at the studio at nine fifteen, nine thirty, get yourself situated, tuned. At ten o'clock, they're going to want to start playing. It's not like you, you're pulling in the in the driveway at ten o'clock. Um, finding your place, you know, hanging with the other guys. If you don't know other some of the other guys, you introduce yourself, you talk to them, you create a camaraderie. Um, when when you cut a track, and I still believe all of these things. When you when you cut a track, you go in and listen to the playback. You don't just sit there on your phone now or. You know, it, you know, it's more than just 
physically playing the notes. It's an engagement. And make suggestions. Be be involved. And um, it, so there's been like a lot of little things like that. Um, you know, just juggling schedules, especially back to the 70s and, and, and 80s. I mean, we were sometimes doing four to five dates a day, six days a week. Wow. I mean, it was it was staggering. So, I mean, I look back at date books and, and they look they look like a chart, um, like like sheet music to a Stravinsky piece or something. <laughs> it's like it's insane. Yeah. But uh, amongst all that is where all of the relationships developed with all the other musicians. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's a it's a magical community. Mm. Yeah. Some really amazing, yeah. amazing, amazing characters and talents and pant loads and, you know, a little right. of everything. <laughs> right, right. Some of those characters I'm wondering, can we talk a little bit about? I Going over your discography, I didn't realize you were on the last Doors album in 72 after Jim had died, full circle. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about what was that like working with the three remaining Doors and where would they must have been? Uh, maybe struggling. I'm, I'm imagining, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, well, the thing that was funny was L.A. was such a vital town through the 60s. And I remember going and just seeing the Doors playing in clubs. Yeah. You know, I'd go see Jimi Hendrix jamming, you know, and, and all these people, you know, CTA back before they were Chicago and stuff. So, you know, to go in the studio with those guys was kind of, it was a slight familiarity, even though I hadn't met them. You know, I knew who they were and everything. And it was really nice, you know. I mean, I had, I had a fondness. Uh, I wasn't the, the biggest Doors fan in the world. Um, I thought Jim was a great front man for the group and everything. But um, sitting there with Krieger and Densmore and Manzarek was, was really cool. You know, just, I still find myself like that. When it's, when it's people that I consider somewhat iconic, yeah. I still, I'll sit in a room and pinch myself and go, wow. You know, if I'm at a place and... Robert Plant or, you know, or, or Clapton come walking in and they go, hey, Lee, how you doing? Right. I go, how the hell do they know me? Right. You know, I mean, it's like one of these things that Phil Collins is like still like that. Yeah. I mean, Phil carries a camera with him. And if he meets a celebrity, he asks him, can I please have a picture sure. with you? And they're creaming at the thought that that's Phil Collins. Right. So, <laughs> so, you know, with being with those guys was really was really cool. You know, I. It would have been fun to have played live with those guys, but it was always keyboard bass when they went out. You know, Ray would use that old Fender little yes. keyboard bass and play the crap out of it, so they didn't really need it. Right. You know, need to have a bass player, but it would have been would have been fun to have experienced that with no, those guys. No doubt. And you know, I had heard they'd almost when Jim was alive, they'd almost brought in a bass player for the band, and they certainly recorded bass in the studio. Yeah. Right. On those yeah, albums. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they used real bass on the albums. But yeah. for some reason that that was just their their yeah. their team, you know, when they went out. And you know, good for them. Right. You know, not why not? It worked, right? It worked. Yeah. yeah. Just going back for a minute too, Lee, the <laughs> when you were coming up in those bands, who were you listening to? Who inspired you musically, whether your favorite bassists or music musicians in general? Um you know, like I said, when I was studying piano through most of that, I was a classical player. Then I kind of moved into jazz a little bit. It really wasn't, you know, like for so many guys, I wasn't a big Elvis fan. I wasn't a <clears throat> big Beach Boys, you know, West Coast fan. 
Um, it wasn't really until the Beatles hit and the English invasion took yeah. place that that kind of turned my head around and got me thinking in a different way. It was a, not so much arrogance on my part in those days. I just knew what I liked and, and what I didn't like. Right. But with the advent of the Beatles, it was um, it was a real head changer. And the thing that was funny was when they played the Hollywood Bowl, I tried desperately to get tickets yeah. to go see them. I wanted to see what these guys were all about. And I was notified that they had sold out and, and they, you know, I couldn't get in. But the year before I had applied to be an usher and I get this call and it says, we have a special concert coming up and we need extra ushers. Are you available? And I ended up being an usher at the, at the Beatles. Wow. That's so, fantastic. And when I met McCartney, I told him that story. He, he got a big kick out of that. That was actually that's, there. That's good. You know, those guys, so many of the guys through that period were really great players right. um, that came out of the English invasion. And then that I was totally like Hendrix and Cream and, yeah. you know, all, all the, the, the groups that came out of kind of the, the hard rock side right. of um, that whole yeah. whole period that, that evolved from that. But I've never really, you know, like McCartney had an effect on me as a melodic bass player. Um, and it made me made me think, but the real thing that made me kind of craft what became, I guess, considered part of my signature, the melodic aspect of the playing, really was was James Taylor, because when we started, James is a, a profoundly underrated guitarist, um, and when he's playing, he's always got this thumb playing bass. Right. And I, when I started working with him, I, I kind of sat there and I went, you know, I can either just copy what he's doing and double it, right. or I've got to figure out some way to weave around it because he's not going to change. Right. And um, and so I really kind of learned how to, like, dance around melodies. And it was great in those days because when we would learn new songs, all it would be was James would come in, sit down with his guitar and play, and then we would figure our parts out where nowadays so many people come into a studio with their demo that they just spent two years working on and they right, refine right. every note of it and, there's, right. and they're completely married to it. So mm. your opportunity to do much with it is pretty limited. Right. Um, and I, I always love it when guys say, man, you were on my mind when I created this. You're the guy I was thinking of. And then they play it for me. I go, not in a million years would I have ever played. I won't. I don't say that to yeah, them. But yeah, yeah. you know, I'm sitting there thinking, really, this is your idea of what I do, and <laughs> you're kind of stuck having to do it for them because that's what they, right? You know. Right. So, so just to so just to help those folks when they hire you, how would you describe their playing uh, or your playing, and what they need to do to be ready for you? Um. In an ideal situation where somebody's put together just a basic chord sheet of their song, you know, if there's a very specific line that you think is important or you want to make sure that I play, then we'll stop and notate it. But for the most part, you know, if I show up and there's nothing there, the guy starts playing, a lot of energy is being spent just trying to suss out the changes. Sure. If if they can give you just even if a, a thing says you know it doesn't even have to, to, to designate the value of the chord. My ears can do that. Right. Just put C F A flat. You know, just kind of structure it so that as I'm looking at it and and learning it, 
I can wrap my head immediately around kind of the song and what to do rather than trying to hmm. learn this thing and sketch it out. Right. But, you know, that doesn't always happen. You know, I, I get I get the whole gamut. I get it from nothing to absolutely everything. Yep. You know, when I go to Nashville, I get number charts and right. learned, learned all that whole system. Sometimes I'll, I'll show up on a date and they, the copyist is screwed up and they've written the bass parts in treble clef. But... <laughs> Coming from piano, I can read treble clef, so it's not an issue. Okay, great, um, so, excellent. But wow. bas- basically, just um, make sure that that the check's going to clear, and 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 when food arrives, put your card down. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, that's and about all. That's right. my only needs, yeah, I think. Right, and no brown M and M's in the uh, <laughs> in the dish, right? So, oh, I love the brown M and M's. Only brown. Only brown M and M's. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what? So that that's an important piece too to have. You know, sort of that like the house. You have a framework, but you want to decorate it. You want to put your yeah. own voice and your own. The music is creativity, right? Yeah, it's especially the um, in the old 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 days um, when there would be like you know four to six guys in the room. Then you'd really have juices flowing. Yeah. And interesting ideas, and, and like a guitar player might play a lick, and I would say, "What was that? Let me let me double that with you." Or we would sit there and you'd go, "You know, that intro could be more more of a hook, or this song needs a bridge." And everybody would throw in ideas. Yeah. Um, so much of my work now is just going to somebody's house, you know, and just overdubbing bass on stuff they've already got, and that just limits me. Mm. Ultimately, it limits me to just the bass part. I can't do any more than affect the bass part. So Um, I kind of miss that aspect of it. Mm. But um, it's a it's it's a process, you know, it's it it, it, and everything is 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 tools. And 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 uh, I still, you know, more and more now in this day, there's more and more sessions being done with, you know, other musicians on the date. Okay. Um, and, and people are actually using studios and not just their garage. Right. Um, not to de- denigrate a garage because some of the best projects I've ever worked on have been. I was in a band in '93 called Barefoot Servants. Which, if somebody wants to Google up Barefoot Servants, uh, if that band had taken off, I would have given everything else up just to do that band. Wow. And and we recorded um, the first album at Capitol Records, but the second album we did at Ben Schultz's house, who was one of the guitar players, and he engineered it. Man, it sounds unbelievable. So to me, you could be in the greatest studio in the world with a crap engineer, and it's going to sound like crap. And you could be in somebody's bathroom with a great engineer, and it's going to sound pretty damn good. That's awesome. So it's really in the engineer's hands more than anything. Yeah. That's fantastic. Great. Yeah. What what makes a good bass player and rhythm section, in your opinion, Lee? Um, I think to be a really great bass player and to be a really great musician in this business, I think the most important thing is to get over the gag reflex. How um, so? Once, once, you're, once you're over that, it opens up <laughs> worlds of work for you that you never dreamed would be possible. Okay. Uh, could you unwrap that one a little? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, I, I think, you know, it goes back to the professionalism. I think it, it, it requires um, good ears. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear the stuff. It's, the, the song and, and the session isn't about you. If it was, you would be the artist. Right, right. So you... 
you listen to the songs and you try to find and craft a part that best accentuates the song. Um, and if, if all it requires is, is whole notes and half notes, so be it. That's not boring. That's the part. That's right. Um, where a lot of guys think, you know, the, the, like the, the more intense it is, you know, if you're doing fusion or stuff like that, you know, it's like that's where you really show what you got. Yeah. I said a whole note can really show what you got. Yeah, it's, 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 an, it's a whole other ballgame. Right. But to me, everything is predicated on the song. And I was fortunate um, to start with guys like James Taylor and Jackson Brown, who are probably the, some of the finest songwriters of the generation. Yeah. Wow. So I, from the very beginning, I was yes. dealing with incredibly great material and learning how to, how to fit into it. So I've kind of approached um, everything I've done, regardless of the genre, it's the same. My tone really doesn't even change that much. I try to find parts that kind of weave through the musical community okay. rather than, you know, this is my specific sound for funk. This is my specific sound for hip hop. This is my, you know, I, I for some reason have found a, a thing that's become kind of like a common denominator throughout, throughout all of it. And regardless if I'm working with somebody from Syria, from Japan, from Argentina, from the state. Music's music, hmm. yeah. So f- m- most of what I do kind of fits in, and then it's up to me to adjust to the specific um, song, the specific um, moment yeah. uh, that w- that we're working with, and then it comes down to the demands of the producer, the artist, whatever. Sure. And sometimes I find myself in situations like we were saying a little bit earlier, where their concept of what they want is a little different than what mine is. Um, but they've hired me, they're paying the bill, it's my obligation to give them what they want. Yes. Now, sometimes on a project, I'll do exactly what the producer wants, and then I'll say, look, man, if you can give me one more pass, let me throw out my idea of how I would like. And sometimes they've looked at me and they said, oh, that's great, I would have that perfect, thank you. Yeah. And other times they said, no, I'm kind of, you know, I really like my idea. I go, cool, I just wanted to give you the option. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's just plain silly. You're hired help. You're yeah. hired help at the end of the day. Right. I, I get it. But it, if somebody doesn't want to hear your take on something, that's just plain silly as, as far as I'm concerned. No, but that's their call. Sometimes yeah. they might say, look, we don't have enough time or right. anything like that. Okay. You know, I, I always, I, my personal kind of mantra is everything I do is etched in mud. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I, I know yeah. what I know what I might think. But to me, if, if somebody has other ideas and wants to try something different, right. Fine, go for it. You right. know, it's it's all good with me. Yeah, that's that professionalism that you're talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, being a drummer, me, Lee, obviously, I've, I'm in a. We we do a, a couple of Warren Zevon songs in my cover band, oh, cool. by the way, Werewolves of London. Not as good as you, of course, but uh, and Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Um, as a drummer, give me some advice and give some drummers advice, please. Of what do we need to do better to listen to you guys as bassists and work better together? Well, well, I think it all just comes down to what to what I said. It's not about you; yeah. it's about the music. And I think if you just, you know, when I, I love when I meet new drummers and I get to play with them, and the first thing I do is I just listen to them, mm-hmm. you know. And I would like the drummer to do the same thing, and if we can connect. There's, there's. That's probably been one of the greatest blessings of my whole career is the other musicians I've played with, and especially when it comes to drummers. 
Um, I've just worked with so many um, over these decades, mm. and 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 at one point, each one of them was a new experience, and um, and for and for the most part, we all hang. We're we're the rhythm section guys, so we all get on really great and, and hang really well. And I try to I try to for myself, I try to figure out where the guy's pocket is. Is does he lean on his kick drum a little bit, a bit, but the snare sits back a little bit, or is everything in front? Or like when I played with Levon Helm, you know, I'm just thinking how far back can this sit? And um, you know, and I would like the drummers to think the same way. You know, like let's keep eye contact going. You know, be in be in communication with each other, even if it's not verbal. Mm-hmm. But pay attention when I work with guys. You know, because I'll work with the simplest guys in the world, and then I'll end up, you know, with Vinny or, or Simon Phillips and right. guys like this. But I did one project with an artist from South Africa, and I was the only bass player, but there were three drummers on it, oh. uh, each one doing four songs. Oh, my God. And it was, it was Simon Phillips, Thomas Lang, and Charlie Watts. Oh, my God. And and Charlie said, I'll do it if I can be the first one, because he didn't want to follow either of them. Right. But I'm sitting there having to play through these three guys, wow. you know, personalities. Yeah. And it was fantastic. And Charlie hung for the whole project because he just dug hanging, even though his part was over with. Probably one of the nicest guys I've ever met in the music business. Yeah. And um, but it was it's communication. It's just listening to each other and, and trying to just do what's best for that song. Sure. And if you hear something, you know, if the drummer hears something that he'd like me to do with him, like if he says, I'm going to do this, let's try to hit, you know, I listen. And if I suddenly go, how about instead of down, just how about, you know, just kicking out ideas about rhythm, you know, and kick drum bass and all that. And as long as the um, communication pathways are open, it's, it's going to be great. That'd be great. Fantastic. And can you talk about one of the, the best drummers that you've worked with in the section, Russ Kunkel, please? Oh, I, yeah, I've known Russ since 68. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, we, we've been friends forever. And the thing I loved with Russ is he and I connected immediately. And we, if, if we were doing a project where all they played us was click and maybe a, 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 like guitar or piano and we couldn't hear each other. If we went back in and listened to the take, chances are we caught all the fills together. We just have this kind of symbiotic, yep. unspoken relationship. And Russ is funny. I mean, a lot of times he, he leans on his kick but sits back on his snare. He's got this style that really has some depth to it. And uh, Russ, I mean, certainly in the section days, Russ can be as fusion-y as anybody out there, but his inclination really is not to be one of these in-your-face drummers. He just really knows how to listen to a song and create the best parts in the same way that Jeff Picaro was like that, too, and Carlos Vega. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these guys, they, they, they were all about songs, you know, and just setting up grooves and yeah. pockets. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, I miss those guys, and I, and I love that I'm doing this project again with Russ, because... You know, we don't see each other as much as we used to in the old days, and this is facilitating an opportunity to play together again. Right. And it's like, you know, mm-hmm. those old slippers you find in the closet, you put them on and you just go, yeah. Yeah. It's good. Very comfy. Very comfy. Yeah. One of the the 
best albums or artists that you guys did work with was Warren Zevon, and of course, you know, Excitable Boy and, and that whole album. Can you talk about your work with Warren Zevon and, and playing with him? Oh, I, I loved it. You know, I mean, Warren was absolutely one of the most brilliant, unique, kind of off-the-wall characters I've, I've ever known, and it was always a treat to be in the studio with him. You kind of never knew what to expect, and you listen to his lyrics, and you just thought, oh, this cat is like, this. you'd love to be, you know, on the inside of the skull watching the synaptic overload take place <laughs> there. Um, but, I, you know, I, I really miss Warren, you know, and I, I don't think, I think the two guys that handled their imminent demise better than anybody in the world was Warren, Warren and Bowie. Oh, right, and, right. Bowie it had this kind of whole plotted his whole album, his yeah. whole idea of, you know, yeah. what was going to be his last time. And right. Warren was kind of the same way, like when he was on Letterman, and he knew he was going to not be there. And you just go, this is deep. This is, yeah. you know, so he was a, he he was deep, in a, but wrapped up in a whimsical kind of, yeah. you know, paper. Right. Yeah, just miss him. Really miss him. Uh, yeah, agreed. Just a, an incredible artist. And did you also tour with him as well as no. be on the record? No, no, no. A lot. You know, the thing is, when I look at you know, when I'm embarrassed enough to have to look at my discography, you know, most everybody on that I never got to tour with. Okay. You know, it, it was always studio work. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, I've toured with with a number of people, but um, there's just not enough opportunities and, and most of these guys we would have i mean we were very lucky when we were able to juggle between james and jackson yeah um you know but that was a whole rhythm section and we wanted to do it all so we made had their offices all talk to each other but it's like you know i wanted to go back out with toto again right. last year and i couldn't do it because phil came out of retirement so right. Right. You know, it's just one of those things, you know, you do you do what you can and then you lament what you're not able to do because you want to do it all. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And there's only so many hours in the day. How did you yeah. first how did you first get the gig with Phil Collins? Well, it was interesting. Um, I was doing an album with Lee Rittenauer hmm. um, back, I think, around 79 or 80. It must have been. And um, and Phil was the drummer hmm. on it. I forget if we played did a couple of tracks together on it. And he knew me from James. He was a James Taylor fan, and I knew of him from Genesis yeah. and Brand X, because yeah. I was a big Brand X fan. Okay. And um, and we talked at the session, and I said, man, yeah, maybe we'll get to play together and do something together. Then when he got his solo deal, and he was doing his first album and his first tour, he called me to do it, but I was out with James Taylor, and I couldn't do it. Okay. So I said, man... I can't do it this time, but, you know, maybe down the pike we can do it. And he called me again in 84 for the No Jacket Required album. And I went to England, and then we, we hit the road after that and did that. And then the But Serious album. And then we had sort of a parting of the ways through the 90s. And then he called me in 2000 and asked if I, if I could come back. Mm. And he was bringing Chester back at that point. Yeah. And, um, and then we did the um, uh, first final farewell tour. Okay. Um, after that, and uh, but it was after that, that that he just decided he wanted to be a stay-at-home dad and announced his retirement, and his life kind of went into an upheaval. Right. 
And I kind of never thought, you know, I mean, I knew we'd be friends, but I didn't think we'd be playing music again. And then all of a sudden, you know, like two years ago, they called and said, Phil's thinking about coming and working again. And said, would you be available? I said, no shit, I'd be available. <laughs> and, uh, and everybody got together, man, and it, it felt amazing. Who else? So, who else is in that band now with you, Lee? Uh, the current lineup is um, Daryl Sturmer, of course, on guitar, who's one of the finest guitar players there is. Brad Cole on keyboards, um, uh, Nick on uh, Collins on drums, um, Luis Conti on percussion. We have four background singers. Arnold McCuller, who I've been out with James Taylor with, and Lyle Lovett and everybody, but he's been with James since like '76 or five, I think. So it's Arnold McCuller, Amy Keys, Bridget Bryant came back, and Lamont Van Hook. And then we have um, just a, the Vine Street horn section with George Shelby on sax and Harry Kim and Dan Fernero and, and Luis Bonilla on trombone. And they're killer. I mean, wow. just absolutely killer. Yeah. And uh, band's just smoking. Yeah. You know? And we're doing a few Genesis songs in the show, so the crowd's loving that. That's and, awesome. Yeah. So it's it's great, but Phil basically comes out and just sits on a stool for the whole thing because he really he's got a condition where his one leg is bad, so it's just easier for him just to sit on the stool and he addresses it the minute he walks on stage. And you, we realized at that point all the crowd wants to do is see Phil and hear those songs. Right. Exactly. You know, he doesn't have to be running around. He doesn't have to be playing drums. Right. Uh, I mean, ideally, it would be great for him because that's. If you met Phil walking down the street and had no idea who he was, and you just said, hi, you know, what do you do? He would say, I'm a drummer. I mean, first and foremost, yeah. that's in his heart and soul. True. He's that before anything else. Yeah. But that's the one thing that's kind of been taken away from him, which mm -hmm. is really kind of sad. Yeah. You know, sure. you like Steve Lukather, you know, developing tendonitis and not be yes. able to play guitar anymore. Right, right. Yeah. It, yeah, just yeah, certain cats. Sure. Well, it's really great that he is feeling well enough to be back on stage and performing. Doesn't matter. Just sitting, sitting in joy, right? So you know, when you're sitting up there on stage, you look up and you've got up, you know, upwards of fifty to sixty thousand people a night. You know, you've done something right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Let's let's talk about that because you are such an accomplished studio musician. Uh, the difference between being in the studio and performing live and maybe or maybe not nerves, dealing with nerves, or was that back in the day, or does that ever come up today? No, I think it's really just confidence. I mean, hmm. we rehearse really hard. We spend a lot of time preparing, so okay. I'm not nervous about it. But certainly crowd size is is meaningless because ultimately you could be playing for a hundred people or you know a hundred thousand. Yeah. Your visual of the audience is always just those first like twenty rows. Okay. Pretty much that's who you're playing for. In the same way, in a club, mm. you're playing to the people you can see. Beyond that, it's just it, it just it exists. Sure. Um, I don't. You know, I, I spend a lot of time preparing. I mean, I'm sitting here right now, and I'm getting ready to hit the road um, next Sunday with Judith Owen, and I've got my practice unit right next to me here. And I, every night I come in and I and I play her music. So when we get to the first gig, it's like we've been doing this um, for ages. Uh, so I, I'm if you're if you're confident in in the material 
and stuff, then there's really no reason to feel anything except excitement to go out there and just mm. kick some ass and have some fun. Right. If you're insecure about your your preparation, mm. then it's then you're then it's nerve wracking. Sure, um, it's been hard sometimes. I've been called to fill in on a tour at the last minute, and uh, you know it's it's hard. You know, you 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 just maybe learn thirty songs in, right. in twenty four hours right. wow. and just you know focused on it, and and you've had to memorize it because you can't mm-hmm. go out there with charts. Right. Wow. It's it's then then it, it's stressful, but. Yeah. I know that if I was put in a position where they, some, I was told you have to choose between playing live, um, touring, or doing studio work, I would choose touring. Would um, you? Yeah. In, yeah. In, in a, do you have a pug? I do. Bob the pug is right back there. I don't know if you can I see Bob, him. I saw his head pop <laughs> yeah. up. Behind. Here, I'll move like this there. for a second. There he is. Hi, Bob. Bob. Say, I, love <laughs> I love pugs. I love pugs. Yeah, Steve Lukather has a pug named oh, Swing. Name Swing. That's great. Swink. 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 Yes, W-I-N-K. Awesome. That's great. But, no, I would always, you know, the thing is, I always kind of look at it in the same way. You know, I love working on cars. Being a mechanic would be fun. Being the driver in the race would be really fun. Mm. And I always kind of look at studio work is, is a process where you can kind of sit and disseminate every note ad nauseum. And... You know, you go out and play live, the minute that note leaves your fingers and your amp, it's done. There's, you're not going to sit there and discuss it and scrutinize it. So um, I, I love playing live. I like just the whole attitude of just going out there and doing it yeah. and seeing immediately the response from the audience. You know, if something you've done kind of sucks, uh, you know, song-wise, well, we better drop that from the set. That really kind of kill, killed the momentum. Right. Um, but that's really, for me, I, I, I prefer live than yeah. anything. So that instant feedback, that energy yeah. you get back from the audience, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's great. What's the hardest thing about touring um, on the opposite well, there's, side? There's several things. I mean, you miss, you miss being home. You miss being, you know, with your family. Sure. Um, I miss seeing my wife. I miss, you know, walking the dogs. I miss driving. I miss, you know, working in the yard and doing all that stuff. Um, but I, I, I have to say the, the greatest negative to me it, for the major bulk of it all is the experience of flying nowadays. Oh, is yeah. The airports are such crap, that, right. you know, dealing with TSA nonsense. One place says you can take your instrument on the plane. The next guy says you can. Really? You can't. And, and you're dealing with just so much bureaucracy and bullshit. Yeah. And when I, you know, you go through all the screenings and all this, and you realize this is meaningless. This isn't making us any safer. It's just inconveniencing everybody and under the guise of making you, you know, safe, but it's not what's happening there. Because so many times, every year they do all these tests, and they have all these guys go through with guns and mm-hmm. explosives, and ninety percent of the time it all gets through. You know, these guys are just a week ago. A lot of these guys were asking if you wanted fries. Mm-hmm. You, know, right. you know, not to denigrate the TSA agents, but you know, there's just it's it's a gig there, and it's got to be boring as hell after a while. And a lot of times I see my bag go through and I look at the person who's supposed to be looking at the screen and they're talking to somebody and my bag's gone through. So, you know, I mean, just the whole, you know, get there hours and hours early 
to sit around, you know, and, and stand in lines. It's not, you know, when I started touring, you'd pull up to the airport, walk right to the gate. Right. There was no security or anything like that, and uh, you never felt threatened. It's a different world now. Right. And uh, yep. so for me, it's the travel. Sure. That's that's the real pain in the ass of all this. Um, if you're fortunate enough, like on the Phil's tour, um, we had a private plane, yeah. so we didn't have to deal with a lot of that. But people would go, oh, it's like so elitist. But well, we had 50 crew guys on the plane. We had everybody. And the thought of trying to move this many people right. through a commercial airport right. to get to a gig where the flight could be canceled or delayed, right. you know, you just can't take those chances. Right. And when you're looking at that many people... Ultimately, you're really probably not paying anymore right. to have your own plane sure. than booking all these tickets and all the stuff you have to do. So, right. so but that makes it a lot easier sure. on that. Level. Yeah, but and, not everybody can do that. Right. Uh, but you've earned that perk, right? I mean, that's well. Uh, it's it, it's so it's not so much even really earn the perk. It's just really the most efficient way to do the business. Sure. On right. it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, when I go out with Judith now, we're going to be in, in, in a Sprinter van okay. driving around the East Coast. And I, I'm just as good with that. That's not a big deal to me. I'm at the end of each travel experience. I'm going to play music for people and make them happy. Right. That's all that matters. You know, you don't want to be beaten to death. I'm not not a 17 year old that wants to live and sleep in the back of the van with his band buddies all kind of with your gear and kind of farting away and stuff. There's certain things I'm not going to do at this point. You've paid your dues, I think at this point, Lee, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so how do you take care of yourself then, whether on the road or when you're home in the studio, what are some of those ways that you take care of yourself? Diuretics. Okay, great. Excellent. No, you know, I just I, I try to eat, try to just kind of eat sensibly when I get to a hotel. Um, I try to take the stairs all the time and not the elevator. Sure. Um, you know, whenever I can, I go out and walk a lot. Um, at home, I do tons and tons of. I've got an acre of land that requires a lot of work, and I do yard work constantly when I'm here. That's kind of my Prozac. It keeps yeah. me calm. Um, Love it, but um, you know, I, I try. I stopped eating red meat years ago, okay. and so like when I'm out there, I'm I'm trying to eat sensibly and sure. and you know stay on top of you know yeah. just being somewhat healthy, right. and uh, and you do the best you can. Not all circumstances are are conducive to being well on on the road, but sure. you, you do the best you can. Right. But I mean, I I'm not patting myself on the back, but I managed to get through this business without ever drinking or doing drugs or smoking. Wow. So I've, I've basically been pretty healthy throughout all of it, so I didn't have any monkeys on my back to deal with. Right. right. That's pretty important, right? I mean, that has added to But it your... helped me. Right. Yeah, I mean, and it certainly hurt a lot of other folks, right? It killed other folks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the real downside when I look back to mm. friends of mine that I've lost over, sure. you know, all, all the decades. You know, you just kind of go... Jesus, you know, God, I miss those people. And, and and it's a lot. It is. You know, when I look back at the gone list, it's a lot bigger than the still here list. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. that band in heaven must be rocking at this point, right? It's pretty But no, none of these guys went there. <laughs> that was a whole other place. Yeah, okay. yeah that, that, <laughs> if they did, then they lied or they're not the guy. I, <laughs> right. I love it. That's great. You want to have a good visual story? Yeah. 
I was working. I, I, I worked for many years in L.A. with with a producer named Jimmy Bowen. Okay. And, Jim, and Jimmy produced. I mean, I would do like Anthony Newley with him and all, all kinds of you know stuff in L.A. But he moved to Nashville, um, and he basically is the guy that changed Nashville from a place with a bunch of old cowboys with their pants around their ankles into the contemporary music scene that it became. Wow. Bowen is deep. A lot of guys down there didn't like him because he was this outsider who came in and, and you know, this kind of an agitator. Yeah. But, um, but he had a set rule in the studio that there was no drinks on the console. That was a big deal to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went down to work uh, one of the times because I used to go, I did hundreds of records with him in Nashville from the beginnings of Vince Gill and Patty Loveless and Reba and all these oh. people. Oh. Um, so I went in there and I set a Coke can on the console and he looked over and he wigged out. He said, I told you no. I said, man, I'm so, so sorry. Well, I had this with me. I brought along my fake spilled <laughs> can of Coke. Love it. So I said it. Then I set that on the console and had this going right up to the first fader. <laughs> and he looked over and lost his mind and started to try to move the, the liquid. And as he pushed it, the whole thing moved. And he was so pissed off at me. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a classic moment. Absolutely. Um, so it was it was it was a kick. And Jimmy's still around and kicking. I think he lives in Scottsdale. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Last time we worked, we did a Merle Haggard record. Mm. And uh, I love Merle. I, I went with Larry London up to his stu- to his his complex up in Redding, California. We did an album up there, and I had done a bunch of work with Merle. And I, w- when I first met him, I said it's such a, in a way, a shame about Oki from Muskogee, because he was like liberal. He was like a, a leftist. I mean, he was like this guy. And I said. So many guys got directed away from you thinking that that was, you know, like this old redneck crap. And he didn't even bully. So we were down in Nashville doing an album. <clears throat> and um, it, we finished the first day. You know, and he was real healthy. He's drinking water. He just married again and had a new baby and was doing great. But he sounded really poorly um, mm. vocally mm. and I was kind of surprised because he had probably one of the best voices in country music as far as I'm concerned and when you hear young Merle you just go oh my god these right. guys looking like a matinee idol he had this incredible voice well the next morning I came to the studio early and early and he was there and he had replaced all his vocals from the previous day wow. and sounded great mm. and I looked at him I said Merle yesterday kind of sucked today really great w- what happened and he goes my singing teeth arrived. <laughs> he had the wrong dentures and couldn't enunciate. Oh, wow. <laughs> I looked at him. I said, I'll never hear that again. <laughs> yeah, you don't and, and then the weirdest thing is back around like seven, very early 70s, I did a Paul Anka record. Hmm. And there was a guitar player on, on the session named Michael Herndon. Hmm. And Michael had aspirations of becoming a studio musician. And uh, but really didn't. He was a good player, but he just didn't have it in him. So he disappeared. And eventually he became an oral reconstructive surgeon who lived up in Quincy, California. Well, when I ended up working with Merle, I ended up hooking him up with Michael 
who had Merle come to his, his clinic. He rebuilt all of his wow. teeth for him into permanence. Amazing. And he has a Pro Tool studio in the basement of his dental clinic so they could go down there and Merle could sing and make sure nothing was messing. And then beyond paying him, when Michael has, I've done a few records with him over the years, he's still a Martin endorsee. Merle did a duet guest appearance on his album for him. That's incredible. So this whole world is yes. all these weird little right. circles that connect. And sometimes it's 30 years before they reconnect and exactly. stuff, but they yeah. still. They do. It's like rehooking up with Cooch and Russ and right. and the guys in a band that's going on the road. Right. That's amazing that that whole networking piece, right? So yeah. yeah, incredible. Can we talk about the business of music? No. Okay. Very good. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> how how has it changed since you began? The pros and cons, and what advice would you give somebody in addition to don't do it? Um. It's changed dramatically. I think my, you know, like when I did this thing the other day with this at this high school, and one of the kids asked me a question saying, you know, what do you think about artists now? And I said, they're great. I said, there's, there's great artists out there. I hear, you know, I go on YouTube and I see, you know, young artists. My problem at this point is the business, yeah. you know, and... In the, be- in the beginning, um, you know, everybody kind of felt, you know, if they signed a record deal, they were going to get screwed and it was going to be, you know, get ripped off and all this stuff. But labels had a machine in, or- in-, in place that could get you placed on the radio, that, could- that-, that-, that moved product and all. And the real problem now is it's... So especially with gear that's available, it's so easy to make music. Right. What to do with it after you've made it is the issue. Sure. And um, and that's really, you know, when I was telling these kids, I said, it's really in your corner to figure this one out, you know, as, as because you guys, you've been raised on all this technology. You've got to figure out how to make this work so you can amortize this into paying your bills and, and not having to look for other things to pay your bills. Right. Um, I've been really blessed. I mean, I've been doing this basically every day since 70 and I've never had to do anything else. Yeah. This is paid for my life. Yeah. And for most guys now, I'm not sure if they'll have that opportunity. Sure. A few will, but not many. Right. Um, you know, with the technology being what it is, it's allowed People to, to everybody can make a record now. You know, I mean, you, you spend, you know, a grand or something and you can put together, you know, kind of a decent little, you know, studio. The experience of being in a real studio with a real band going and listening to a playback through big power amps and big speakers, there's nothing like it. And so many haven't had that experience, so they don't really know. Um, uh, another one of my my mantras is don't be an old fart. And, you know, cause I want to keep working yeah. and I don't want to be that guy that's sitting with a bunch of 20 year olds in the studio going, well, in my day when we were cutting analog, right. you just sound like an old fart. Right. Right. Cause they've never heard analog. They really right. conceptually, they might've heard of something about it, but right. they don't know what the sound of a, of a machine rewinding is and all that <laughs> stuff. But if they ask questions about it, yes. I'm really happy to talk about it. Yeah. 
But it's it's a different world now. Certain aspects of all of this technology have in, have improved the the process. I mean, when you, when you want to start editing and saving, you're not looking at, at the side room with 300 boxes of tape that you've right. got to go through to find that bar. Right. No matter how well you've logged yes. your information, you can really pretty much just keep piling stuff up, right. almost to the point of distraction where you've got too much and you don't right. you have to start taking this apart. Right. But it, that's really the difficult part of this business to me. Mm-hmm. Now is really how to how to get your product out there and and make people aware. I mean, there's just so many opportunities to for people to see you on YouTube. Sure. Not how many late night shows are there? I mean, you see a band on that show. Right. Well, there's a hundred thousand bands that want that slot, right. and uh, so it's 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 hard to be real encouraging but i i like i told the i always tell like it was strange the other day doing this thing because it was kind of a general high school thing where the few times i've done clinics it's for bass players generally or some other you know drummer guitar players will show up sure but um i always look at them and i go you know the odds of this happening are so infinitesimal for you but i said when there's a powerball you know, they say the odds are 175 million to one. And the next day on TV, there's a guy standing there with right. his big check. Right. So somebody in that room is going to make it. But the odds of making it are, um, some. I mean, they're more limited than they used to be. Because in, in, in certainly in the 70s, labels were signing artists like crazy. Right. And, and everybody was kind of getting a shot. And some people were fortunate, like you look at somebody like Bonnie Raitt. Yeah. who they believed in her, so they kept yeah. recording and losing money on her mm. forever. But then Nick of Time came and suddenly bailed out her entire past catalog. And right. So it's, you know, there's a lot of aspects to this whole thing. Um, things I do miss I, miss, I miss LPs from the standpoint, I love the artwork, yeah. I love being able to read liner notes, yeah. I love going to a record store and perusing through the, you know, through the bins, because that, to me, was your voyage of discovery, where to go on Spotify and all these different other formats, yeah. you kind of, it's really hard to discover things like digging through a, a, just a bin that says, you know, under S's, and, and you find like an album cover and you go, I don't know who this is, but this is pretty cool. Oh, that guy's on it. Maybe I'll check this out. Right. You know, that voyage of discovery is gone. But one of the things that's cool is like being out with Judith Owen. Um, when we do our after-show swag um, table and signing autographs and taking pictures, she's sent, selling more vinyl than anything. That's fantastic! Wow. Yeah, so it's 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 interesting to see a, a certain element of the pendulum is, right. has swung back. Yes, and uh, t- a turntable isn't just for doing this on. That's you know, right. <laughs> uh, can actually listen to music on right. it. Right. So right. Just a, a nano a, a nano iPod with with buds is your <laughs> right. so it's uh, like you know like watching a movie on your phone right exactly right <laughs> it's supposed to be the big screen right so yeah. yeah exactly is there anybody Lee past or present whether still here or gone that you haven't got a chance didn't get a chance to play with either in the studio live 
who, who you well, certainly there's a lot of people I would lo- have loved to be able to go out and play uh, a tour. You know, one of the artists I've always really loved, and I've never really had the opportunity, is a guy like Steve Winwood. Mm. Yeah. I've been a Winwood fan since the very beginning of, of his career. And, you know, guys, you know, because I got to work with Spencer Davis and I've known a lot of the people around him, um, but I didn't get a chance there. Um, you know, for, for the most part, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of people that if the opportunity to play with them would have ever come along or does, you know, great. If not, you know, I can't complain about things. So there's people I've, I've worked with where, you know, like I did two albums with Andy Griffith. And, you know, I'm sitting in the studio and Andy's sitting right next to me. And on the one hand, we're hanging and playing music and talking, and he's great. I mean, he used to always do music on his show. He had the same guitar he used on in Mayberry. Wow. And he ended up winning a Grammy for, for Best uh, Contemporary uh, Gospel Incredible. record because he did, like, all kind of hymnal yeah. stuff. Wow. And um, and I'm just sitting there pinching myself going, Christ, this right. is Andy Griffith right. next to me. And he told me a, a great anecdote. Yeah. We, we were sitting there, and... And and he had this beautiful thick white hair, like he had in Matlock right. and everything. And he said, looks at me, he goes, "Who would have thought I'd still have all this white hair and Opie be bald?" <laughs> I almost crapped my pants. I was laughing so hard. I love it. That's fantastic. And, uh, he was great. He'd call me all the time from North Carolina and just, wow. "Hey, Lee, how you doing?" It's Andy here, you know. Just and I kind of would go. It was worth my whole career for this. Or there's two DJs in LA, Mark and Brian. They, they've their show is huge for years, and they they don't do it anymore. But um, for years they did a Christmas show, and it would be um, at the Hollywood Palladium. And their show went on live at like five in the morning. So I mean, people were lined up around the block in the wee hours, and it was crazy. But he would have they would have all this craziness. And in one of the shows, Donald O'Connor came and sang White Christmas, and Mel Torme was there and did the Christmas song. And I went back in the dressing room afterwards, and I looked at the two of them. I said, if I die in a car crash on the way home, it's okay. Right. (laughs) This is really, this was a good one here. Amazing. It's amazing. But, you know, I mean, you know, when opportunities do come along to play with people, I, 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 I... I never say no unless I can't do it, just schedule-wise, or I have a really bad feeling that I'm going to get burned okay. on it. I go with my gut, and it's happened a few times. So I'm I'm, I'm leery of some some things that sound way too good. Okay. Can I, can but, I, um, go ahead. I was just going to ask, uh, could I ask a little bit about that? Um, obviously, so many highlights that you have, but I'm wondering about some of the challenges or learning lessons that you've had with music in or in the business. What do you mean by that? When you say you got burned? Well, you just got your checks was bad. Oh, okay. Oh, you get ripped off basically. So that would be it. I mean, okay. When you, when you've invested a lot of energy, um, and, um, time into preparing for a project, doing it. And then all of a sudden, the check bounces, the yeah. guy's not around anymore and all mm. that. That, that. That leaves you with a real sour taste. Sure. So sometimes you just get a feeling okay. in advance. Somebody calls you and you go, I don't think this is kosher. You know, I think I'm going to pass on this one. Okay. Um, but they're few and far between. For the most part, I would say my positive experiences in this business are up in the 90 percentile. Right. 
breakfast. So I, I, I wouldn't really complain about anything. And there's not a business in the world that somebody isn't going to burn you in. That's so right. you can't yep. think that. Exactly. exactly. Also, I am, you know, I get really weary when I would look at guys' interviews, like in Bass Player Magazine, and it would list their discography. And it's like all the very A stuff, yep. you know. And I'd go, man, if you had a career, you played on everything. So I would always tell people, you know, they'd say, oh, man, all that, like Phil Collins and, you know, Spectrum and all yeah. that. And I'd go, yeah, but I, I played on I Am Woman. Right. I played on It's Raining Men and right. all these things. I even played on Ted Knight's album. You know, I mean, it's like, to me, the idea of getting up every day and going to work and playing music with your friends it doesn't get better than that. Right. So it's pretty incredible. Yeah. 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 So maybe mention a, yeah. a, an artist or an album that you were on that maybe not as well known, but you feel really good about, really proud about. Um, I did a bunch of records with Stephen Curtis Chapman, mm. who's one of the, the, the top artists in the contemporary Christian field. Man, his uh, we didn't necessarily shared the same spiritual idea about yeah. things. But musically, um, man, the guy is like ridiculous. And and, and I'm happy you know, he has his path in life. And, sure. and that, that's cool. Yeah. With me, um, I love working on his stuff. And people come up to me, you know, and surprise me sometimes. They'll go, oh, aren't you? They kind of recognize him and say, oh, I love your work. on." And then they say some album that to me, I go, You've heard that record? You know, I mean, it's like it, it seems obscure. Your expectation is going to be that it's going to be like one of the yeah. ones that most people think about. But, right. you know, the first question when I played at the high school, the other when I went over to the high school and talked to them, the first guy that raised his hand said, you played on Stratus? Yeah. You know, you just don't you, know, you don't know yeah. how you're right. how things are touching people. Right. So, right. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a fascinating adventure to me. Yeah. It's every day. It's just like, but there's a lot of a lot of things that that I've done over the years where never even got released. That were some great records that for some reason you know the deal fell through or whatever. Mm. And I know somewhere that's just sitting on a shelf rotting away. Oh, ouch! You go, that's really sad. Yeah. You know? And uh, and other things really surprise you. I remember when I worked with Vanessa Carlton. You know, we did her album A Thousand Miles. And I walk in the studio, and there's this young squirt sitting in the, at the piano, pre- just practicing the shit out of Chopin. Right, right. And I'm going, wow, this is going to be good. She's fine pianist. I mean, she had a big hit with that right. that record. But, you know, it, it's it's great when you come into a project not knowing who the artist is or anything like that, and then you walk away just going, wow, this is yeah. this is really a fun Fun thing. Amanda Marshall is another artist I loved working with out of Canada. Yeah. And Google her up, and um, man, she, what a voice! And this girl was great. And uh, she's still up, you know, working. But you know, it was one of those things that every once in a while somebody would come up and say, "Man, I love what you played on Amanda's record." Mm. Wow, cool. Yeah. yeah, that must feel really good, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just good, and, and it's good that these artists, you know, I love for them to get recognized. Sure. You get see the the thing. For me, is I'll go in and, and go to work on a on a project and walk out the door and go to another project. For that artist, that time in there might be the only time they ever get a shot. Yeah. So when it gets heard, it's great. For me, my work is a continuum. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I do you know, I'll go on the road, I'll come off, I'll do a project. We just finished doing 
tracks for Kristen Chenoweth, mm-hmm. Broadway singer, yeah, and, yeah. and and uh, you know, every time I, I kind of turn around, I've got another project right. to do. So my career isn't predicated on an individual project right. where for the artists, it's right. like it can be live or die yeah. for them. Yeah. When you were first coming up and even before you met JT, was there uh, an original dream that you had? Was it to be the next Wrecking Crew? Was it to be in no. the band? Cause when I met, no, when I met James, I was still in college mm-hmm. as a science art major. Right. And thought I was going to maybe be, you know, and plus I was doing all all I could at that point to maintain my student deferment because it was the height of Vietnam sure. and everything. Sure. Um, so I really didn't think music would be anything for me other than just playing clubs, you know, on, you know, with friends and looking for a gig that would actually pay my bills and have a future. So, um, it's amazing. so for me, I, it, I never, you know, this all kind of came through the back door. Yeah. I didn't have like a plan, yeah. you know, for what, 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 how to lay out my career. Right. It just, it was the perfect storm because if James hadn't come to that rehearsal of when I was in that band right. and I'd never met him, who right. knows? I'd have probably never right. had a, it was just, and he was the guy yeah. because he started that entire West Coast singer songwriter right. attention. Sure. And, the fortunate thing was that Peter Asher insisted that our names be on the record. Oh. So when all of these other singer-songwriters were now being signed, they would look at James's record, yes. and it would say Russ Kunkel, Lee Sklar, blah, blah, blah. On it. So they would call us. And next thing you know, I had a career that I didn't even understand. Right. It's amazing stuff. So, yeah. So yeah. even though you didn't have a plan, it sounds like there was a plan for you, which was really something. Great. Something happened. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. Last, lastly, then, Lee, I mean, you've had such an amazing career and there's more to come, obviously, for future folks who are watching this, who would like to get to where in you future, are. future, like a thousand years. In the yes. Future. In the, like the, in the year 2525. Right? <laughs> <laughs> for, for folks who want to learn from you and to, to get to be where you are, what advice would you give them? Um, I mean, it's it, it's kind of a a hard thing because the business has changed over the years. So, but I would say the, the primary thing is to enjoy making music, enjoy the camaraderie that it that it creates. Um, if you're fortunate enough to find yourself in a working situation, treat it as a profession and not as a hobby. Really. Be diligent, like I said in the beginning. You know, be very you know be professional about about things. Um, be be there. Don't be off in your heads in another place. And because word gets around fast, if you screw up, yeah. you know, your career can end real quick. Because there's a thousand guys standing outside the door waiting for your seat. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I mean, to me, the, the real thing was even if you don't make it as this being your primary source of income, you can still enjoy music. Like my friend Michael, you know, who right. became an oral surgeon, right. but he still a, a records, makes records, writes songs, and he's a good artist. It just, for him, it wasn't quite right. I did an album a couple of years ago with a guy, and we were, we were talking. Oh, crap. I'll it's all good. Ring up. It's all good. Um, but I, I was working with this guy, and when we finished the project, I said, so what do you do normally? What's your kind of thing? And he goes, my brother and I own Skechers Shoes. Oh, wow. 
And I've been tons of guys like that. Yeah, amazing. That, that they, they inherited a medical supply company, right. a family business, yeah. but they're a good artist. Wow. And wow. you know, it's great. You just don't. You just don't know um, what, what, what can happen in this. But kind of it, try to just embrace life mm. and experience it because it all it all enhances yeah. um, what you, what you ultimately do. Yeah. Amazing. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, I'm touring again with Judith Owen starting on, on May 6th. Okay. Uh, we'll be back in New York. We played the Iridium on the 10th. Okay. Um, and then we're doing some New England uh, uh, East Coast gigs and then up into the Midwest. We end up in Milwaukee on okay. the uh, 29th, I think. But Judith is fabulous. I love working with her. She's married to Harry Shearer. From oh, Spinal Tap of and Simpsons and all that. He, he's got a new album out because uh, right. he's Derek Smalls. That's he's got right. Smalls Change, his yes. new solo album. That's right. But Judith is kind of like if you took, uh, you know, Carol King and Joni Mitchell and all those of that genre and rolled them into one and then put them on steroids, it mm. would be Judith. Amazing. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. And then June, we head back to Japan, like I said, with Wadi and Cooch and everything. Yes. And then there's other stuff lined up for later in the year that I, I, I'm not at liberty to talk about yet. Okay. But, okay. But maybe with JT or Phil or somebody like that? No, it might be somebody with initials along those lines. We'll see. <laughs> but, but everything's, you know, I can't complain at all. Yep. You know, I just yeah. spent two solid days doing a ton of yard work. My hands are completely chopped liver. And, uh, and that makes me happy, too. That's awesome. So. That's really great. You're not going to ask me about my name and what it means? Well, actually, uh, that was my last question. What does Leland Sklar mean, by the way? <laughs> well, Leland, Leland means little. Uh, in Russian, Sklar means glass blower. Hmm. You know, it's somebody who makes glass. So huh. I was on the road in, in UK with Judith Owen, and um, we ended up doing a lot of different every every town has a bbc studio so we were you know doing the whole thing promoting our album and we got to this one and there was this girl disc jockey there and this isn't denigrating to women because we had great ones too but this girl dj who had no clue who judith was was completely ill prepared to ask any questions no clue who i was or anything so we're sitting there and she's just looking at her notes and goes oh Sklar, that's an interesting name. What does it mean? And I said, uh, in Russian, it means glass blower. And she goes, well, have you have you ever blown any glass? And I said, only Philip. <laughs> and she sat there with this kind of complete vacuous look on her face. I doubt if she knew who Philip Glass was. <laughs> Judith almost passed out. She was hyperventilating. And, uh, you know, so I love moments like that where yeah. you can just kind of just... You know, take the piss out of somebody, right. and you know, maybe maybe after we left, somebody might have said to her, "You know, you know what just happened on your show." <laughs> right. but, um, exactly. And shall we go out with the finger? I'm not sure. Uh, think about it. Right. <laughs> and who who is it we're giving the finger to, Lee? <laughs> um, well, actually, the, the whole thing with the finger. Yeah, tell me was, this story. Okay, this I'll do this real quick. Okay, when we were out with Bill Collins doing the um, final farewell tour, yeah, um, there was talk that he was going to retire. Yeah, and uh, we had like a hundred crew guys. I mean, this was a massive tour, and I thought, man, I may not see any of these guys again. You know, who knows? And I and they had hired a bass tech for me, and I've never had a bass tech uh, on a tour. I've always done my own gear. Yeah. Um. So Steve. Uh, 
became kind of like a general, anytime somebody needed somebody, they got Steve. So he and I had a running joke, you know, every time he'd see me, he said, because he just, he had come up the tour where like, it was the bass player had like 10 basses and wanted new strings every night and all this oh my crap. God. So, um, I thought I'm going to take pictures of everybody and make a little folder for the end of the tour. First guy I go up to, to it's Steve and he's sitting on his computer working and I go, Hey Steve, give me a smile. And he just is sitting there, looks away and goes, <laughs> I took the picture and I looked at it and I went, this is actually pretty cool. So I went and got Phil, Tony Smith, his manager, every crew guy, caterers, you, you name it, all the band. And I put it away and there was probably about 120 pictures in this folder for a couple of years. Then when I went out with Toto, I decided to t take pictures with those guys too. It got up to about 300 pictures by the end of their tour. And I'm looking at all this, and I made it my screensaver, so it would just rotate with these pictures. Well, at this point, I'm probably close to 11,000 wow. pictures of people flipping me off. That's incredible. And I don't care about this. Yeah. What I, I like is this. <laughs> the, when you give people permission to flip you off, you get everything from <laughs> you know, so it's only, I mean, when I went up to that school last last week, I got the whole class to flip me off. And when I asked, I asked them to do it, they were thrilled. It was so That's exciting. Awesome. So um, I may do a coffee table book of this. I was just thinking but, that. Yeah. But it's got to be. The, the thing is, on the one hand, this is this is just a gesture. This is this is no big deal. If there's a smile or anything right. behind, it's not a big deal. If there's a carload of guys next to you giving it to you on the freeway, you there might be some shit going down. Right. And for the most part, if this really had the effect it could have, I would aim it right at Washington and just take down the whole pile. Um, but I'm not going to end this on a, on a dark note because I live, this is why I'm not on Facebook for another 30 days. Okay. Uh, I, I was kicked off seven times since last summer mm. for, for basically for because I'm being trolled by people who hate my politics. Mm. I mean, I even had death threats on Facebook. Wow. Wow. Sorry to hear it. That's by, these, by these chicken shits that are sitting in mom's, you know, in, in, in the basement, in their little dungeon down there with their ABBA poster, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're coming after me. Right, right. Not, not to denigrate ABBA, I'm sorry, because right. they're the, the group. Right. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a strange time. But, yeah. but, you know, the thing is, I feel fortunate enough that I've managed to play music all over the world. And when you're playing music, politics disappears exactly. and people enjoy themselves. And I, for that, I feel blessed that this is part of my life. Right. Yeah. It really is the universal language. No matter yeah. what your beliefs are, you can all, all get into music. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Thank yeah. you, Lee. I appreciate it. And uh, I will send you I will send you the picture uh, of us doing that so you can add it to your screensaver. Definitely. Great. Great. Yeah. This awesome. only means that to me you're number one. That's right. Not number two. That's number right. one. It's a whole if new I, meaning. If I do this, you're nothing. <laughs> wow. Amazing stuff, Lee. Thank you so much for your time with being so generous and, and incredible stories. It's fantastic. But I love it. It's my pleasure. Oh, my God. Thank you so much, Leland Sklar, for being on the show today. This guy, 
He was hilarious to talk to. I loved all the stories about James Taylor, Phil Collins, Jackson Brown, Warren Zevon, talking about all of that stuff with Warren. So cool. What was your favorite part of the interview with Leland? What an incredible career as part of the section on over 2,000 albums. I loved hearing about when he played with The Doors after Jim had passed as well. Very, very cool. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got more interviews with great artists coming up for you. Let us know which artist you'd love to hear most, and we'll try to get them and their story on the air to you. Please subscribe to the audio podcast here, and you can certainly watch all of these because they're in video form, too. Check out our YouTube page, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our website, musiciansontherecord.com. If you're enjoying these interviews, really glad you are. Please be a roadie for the show and share them with someone that you know would love them, too. Until next time, keep it all about the music. I'm David Ward. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 